Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. March, March is here, and our first episode in a couple weeks. Florida man R.J. Heyman looks like you are uh, calling us from Houston, uh, where Reverend Condon also re- presides over her flock of college students. How are you guys doing? Sorry. Good, man. Yeah, happy Lent. Yeah, happy Lent. We did our first blessed, um, Lent. blessed Lent. Excuse me, Ash Wednesday Lent. service under my leadership. I think you've done it before in the like on campus, which was really cool. It was fun. Yeah. It's cool to get all to do all this stuff for the first time in ministry. So, like on my own. So, yeah, yeah it's cool. RJ, I'm how's your penitential good. season going? I'm doing really. I'm doing great. Uh, church in Florida is really fun. Um, I am back in Houston right now, though. I've been spending the past three days packing up a U-Haul, which I shall be driving down to Florida tomorrow as we seek to get our home staged and sold Mm. so we can move. And then this morning, actually, I took my second son, Spencer, to get his learner's permit. So that was Mm. very exciting. So I'm a little sore, honestly, from lifting boxes and furniture. I'm trying to keep the energy up for our conversation (laughs) today. This is also the most exercise I've gotten in mm, a decade. So so that's that's good. Which is like so unfair because the joke before we got on, like I was all frantic and then I suddenly look up at the screen and RJ looks like he's 14 years old today, guys. (laughs) It's like crazy. Like, oh my gosh. Keep it coming, Condon. Keep it coming. I will tell you, man... (laughs) The key is just not eating is really helpful, but I'll, you know, but, um, we're here I'm for also, all your eating disorders. I'm listeners. soft. I am. I will say I'm light, but I am soft. So <laughs> I, I could, uh, yeah, I saw someone down in Florida I hadn't seen in a while. This great guy, Bill Blind, who I love, um, but who very much is a truth teller. And he's like, RJ, your face looks quite a bit rounder than last time I saw you. This isn't like a dinner party. I'm like, thanks, Bill. That's super encouraging. Please make other comments on my physical appearance. God bless Bill Bland. All right. I mean, the the lesson is here is that RJ is just the worst. Mm. 100%. It it continues. That's the lesson every week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to jump in with some things on the lighter end of the uh, spectrum. And that was sent to us by uh, Reverend Sarah Condon, written in the New York Times by Lindsey Krauss. The headline is, My Ex-Boyfriend's New Girlfriend is Lady Gaga. My Ex-Boyfriend's New Girlfriend is Lady Gaga. And yes, this is an opinion piece in the New York Times. Um, but it's uh, if you can see past maybe the, the, the slight uh, absurdity of it, then you can kind of get to this. The main question is, how do you compare yourself with one of the most famous women in the world? She writes, uh, after confessing that she's discovered that her the man she dated for seven years, I believe, is now dating uh, Lady Gaga. Social media in 2020 is so ingrained that it's no longer a supplement or even an addiction. 
We used to obsess about celebrities and then started obsessing about one another. Maybe a decade ago, I would have subscribed to Us Weekly. Today, there's no need. I have the parade of people in my phone. I mix, quote, real celebrities with people I know, and I can curate it all however I want. I scrolled through Instagram recently and saw a post from Lady Gaga, and she's sitting uh, in her new boyfriend's lap, my ex-boyfriend's. All these friends from college liked it, along with nearly three million others. Oh, my God. If you've ever Googled an ex's new partner, and be honest, you've probably played a certain game with yourself. You're either just curious or you want to know how you compare. Ideally, the ex's life didn't improve too much without you, right? In this case, though, that's all upended. How do you compare yourself with Lady Gaga? So she goes on to say that basically she's decided she's going to treat herself as though she were Lady Gaga and ask the question, what would Lady Gaga do in each social situation? (laughs) So instead of thinking that dress is too expensive, uh, I buy it anyway. Why should I accept less than Lady Gaga? I went to a coffee shop. Did I want a large? Yes. And for the event with the dress, did I want my makeup done? I never had, but yes. And yes, I'll get the lashes too. Recently, someone sent me a photo of my fiancé and me dancing at a wedding, and I posted it on Instagram. I saw Lady Gaga's boyfriend in the views, and I realized we're actually all the same. Strangers smiling on a screen. So, I mean, but when she's looking, she's, 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 instead of thinking, why not me, when she sees them together, she says, that was me. It pulls the illusion of the celebrity down. This is a, this is a, that's their beginning. And then instead of it pulling people down, it seems like it has then elevate. She's used as she used to elevate herself to Gaga esque status. Um, but you know, I'm not that as interested in what I have to say about this. I want to hear from the uh, only person on this podcast who has preached a sermon to uh, Lady Gaga herself, <laughs> and that would be. Um, that's Sarah me because I was on staff with a lot of men and none of them wanted to preach on the Super Bowl. So that's how that happened. Um, I actually thought I thought of the preaching to her when I was reading this because it was similarly like I didn't do anything to land in this situation sort of scenario. And also was I, 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 I kind of gosh, no, I genuinely feel feel some pain for this writer, for this woman whose ex-boyfriend is Lady Gaga's new boyfriend. Um, it, I think some of it was tongue-in-cheek, but this idea that, like, she now needs to treat herself with, like, Lady Gaga-like status and, like, buy the expensive things and buy the expensive coffee and um, kind of go deeper into this darkness on some level was really... I don't know. It was really sad for me, for her. Like, I was like, I was kind of hoping she'd be like, well, good luck with like, how bad is fart smell and how much he likes to watch, you know, like antique roadshow <laughs> and American pickers, you know, like good luck with how he drinks too much in front of your parents and like says four letter words that make them uncomfortable or whatever, because like, he's going to do all those things to Lady Gaga. Like that's happening. You know what I mean? Like all the reasons your relationship ended, he's going to carry those right into his relationship with her. So there's there was like I just wanted to offer her like a consoling word on some level when I read this because it's like I don't know it 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 reminded me a little bit honestly of when she, when Lady Gaga let's just call her Stephanie that's her name when Stephanie um what's her Christian name when she came to church. 
there was this really interesting thing where there were sort of like two camps of people, either people who were like very excited she was there or people who seemed to feel like they had to make some sort of moral judgment on her character. And neither of those made sense to me because like I didn't even realize she was in the room. She came up and got communion. Like she was just a sinner who wanted to like kneel at an altar rail. You know what I mean? And so I which is the gift of Christianity that it can kind of cut through a lot of that stuff. And I felt for this writer because she, she obviously doesn't have that context would be my guess. Right. So, I mean, just, just to remind listeners who, who I think we told that story way back when, but it was, she was in, in Houston to perform at the halftime show of the Super Bowl, and just so happened to come that morning to worship at you where you were preaching and uh, yes that's yeah, yeah, the, yeah. that's the context here but this is yes. pre a star is born so right um, yeah yeah and uh yeah that's i mean yeah, she, was, she, monsters, she wasn't she know? wasn't that big she wasn't very big back then she wasn't very big no, she, she was, wasn't she was like, only she doing the halftime show for the super bowl so super she was bowl. she really hadn't you know reached her full potential <laughs> yet i really feel like it's sarah's, she's famous now i feel like it's sarah's sermon that carried her into the next level i think that's what it is. she's just been <laughs> Yeah, she was she was inspired to lit she she, she was like that's Sarah Condon what would Sarah Condon do that's what that's what, what Lady yeah, Gaga has been asking herself obviously um, I do the other thing I have to say though RJ is like there's so much I hate that she kind of called out her ex boyfriend at the end like it's funny and kind of like <laughs> but like it's also kind of <laughs> like it's like. Why, why does she feel unnecessary to be like, and he saw me and my fiance's like, I totally understand the impulse to do this. There was an Onion article this very week saying mm-hmm. uh, the headline was, no, stop, please, shouts woman as hands uncontrollably Google all of boyfriend's ex-girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, like, it's just like, I feel like now she's got like the ultimate comeback because she basically like called him out in the New York Times. I don't know. It's like, okay. I mean, I guess you get to do that because he's dating Lady Gaga. I don't, I don't, you know, that's, that's the problem with the context of like the, the, the system of morals under which we live now. Like they're so with the internet, you just don't know what they are. Yeah. RJ, where did your mind go? I, uh, I thought, well, first of all, I, I don't, because I've been married now for almost 20 years and I got married when I was 23 years old, like A, I don't really have any significant exes and we got married kind of oh, before RJ. the, I don't really, That's so you sweet. know, we got married really, my, my wife is, I just left like a, like a, like just a trail of bodies behind me on my way to my husband. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Keep going. Uh, my, no, my wife is the first, I think the first person I was ever in love with. You know, like really mm-hmm. in love with, and so I, I don't. I mean, you know, sure, it, there, there were like a couple girls or whatever in in college, but I have no idea what they're doing right now. the The only thing that it um, kind of rung. Well, first of all, I just feel bad for people who live in this moment when everything is out there that you've ever done and your entire past. And apparently if you live in any major metropolitan area, you know, all you're doing is spending a lot of time on, on Tinder and just hoping for the best basically, which just sounds awful. Like I'm that sounds terrible. Um, the only way I kind of rung my bell was when my mom sometimes sends me little newspaper clippings from my hometown newspaper in New Canaan, Connecticut, about all these fabulous things that people that I graduated from high school with are now doing. And I'm, you know, like, oh, isn't it so great? Stop that it, Hillary. Such and Stop such doing is managing, that. Is managing director at, you know, uh, you know, whatever, Golden Sachs or something. Or And I'm like, mom, I yeah, don't exactly, I don't want to hear that. Like, that doesn't make me feel good about myself. I don't, <laughs> I don't really care about what they're doing. I just care about how it makes me feel about myself. Oh, and so RJ, please if only never, you were from Mississippi. <laughs> 
please <laughs> never send me those articles ever again. Well, didn't we? Um, we they used to say before social media became as ubiquitous as it was, people would say that it, it was starting. It felt like a permanent high school reunion. Yes, and yeah. but yeah. That, that it's no longer. It's not going to feel like that for people who have. There was no high school reunions before social media. It's high school yeah. reunions are going to feel like, oh, this is kind of what Facebook feels like. <laughs> right. yeah. Except for I'm having fun. Like, why you know? am I why am I here when I already know everything that you know? Yeah. Yeah. Reunions in the future. I wonder if it'll become a passe thing now that everyone knows everything about everybody. Well I didn't have the boob job for mine. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag goals. Hashtag preschool. <laughs> Some cin- cin- <laughs> absolutely scintillating commentary here on the state of celebrity culture. Um, though I do think it, it one of the things that, that it strikes me is that uh, I like celebrities are such objects in our lives, and we um, we keep them at a remove that you know. And uh, I just wrote an extra chapter for the paperback edition of Seculosity that comes out in August, and it's all about the seculosity of fandom and how, uh, you know, celebrities can be proxies for us. We project all of our hopes and dreams onto them, and then we we hate them when they, we, we really want to crucify them when they disappoint us, or when they, mm-hmm. when they remind us that they are just like us, even though all those columns are like, celebrities are just like us. Um, in this case, uh, I was kind of struck by the fact that she took what I would see as a, a categorical negative that you could never compare to a global superstar and used it as a way for sort of self-empowerment. I, I, part of me thought that was kind of neat, but I also thought it sounded forced. Like, I'm not yeah, sure. I didn't do, buy do, it. Do you really believe that? that? Because... Yeah. You know. Like for four days you can do it. You yeah. know what I mean? And then you're like, shit, that was a lot of money. You're yeah. gonna be broke in a hurry if you're trying to live <laughs> like Lady Gaga. Yeah, I just I'm filing for bankruptcy now. Right. <laughs> but also the fact that you know this could have happened and she wouldn't have found out about it. But now earlier on in the article she says you you can't unsubscribe from no. the permanent high school reunion and we've just got to figure out a way to uh, live within it without killing each other. Um, Whew. So, yes. Uh, and what is it, though? What is Impa the perverse uh, of, of wanting to Google your, um, you know, whoever you end up with? You always want to Google all their exes. I think um, I was looking for this link, that Onion article, and I looked on mm-hmm. Reductress, which is this sort of, uh, I, they call it women's news feminized or something like that. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's an onion that's sort of specifically geared towards, uh, you know, ladies. And there are so many articles about this phenomenon that it must be a really a thing. Because uh, I, don't, I don't actually hear about my guy friends uh, Googling their... Yeah, of course it's a thing, Dave. It's a complete thing. And but, yeah. but what is going on there? Do I want to feel better then? Do I want to feel worse then? Do I want to... What is the judgment? Um, I mean, I'm happy to know most of them married social workers. Like, at least they found some nice girl after they dated me. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Google, Google, Google. Um, okay, well, let's shift to something much more, I think, uh, uh, a little bit more substantial, which is mm-hmm. our relationship with the elderly. With the um, with Sarah, you wrote something wonderful last week called "Blessings from the Elderly" in a Mima Bible Commentary. 
And in it, you quote, you begin by quoting Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal. And he says he traces the loss of this, this blessing for us, the blessing of older people saying you're doing a good job. Um, he points out that we all used to die much younger. So the old were precious members of our society. They carried memory, wisdom, and also the ability to bless. Because most people can see their 80s and even 90s now, uh, the elderly have become less special. Our society has become so segmented that the very young and the very old rarely cross paths anymore. In fact, church may be the last place this happens at all. One of the unspoken gifts of ministry is that you learn that the old were once young. Sure, the church is full of old people, but the church is full of old people and they all used to be young. I have received communion alongside a doctor who aided workers building the Panama Canal. For four years, I ate church suppers with a CIA operative who worked during the Korean War. And I cannot count the testimonies of the elderly who have survived the loss of a child or the falling apart of a marriage or a near-death health crisis. They have dashed dreams, tales of romantic desire, and a hopeful sense that things could always be worse. Because they remember when things were worse. This, too, is an odd blessing for everyone. It becomes easy to look at older people and forget that their lives had and have as much meaning as our own. It becomes easy to disregard the work they did because our work seems so much more valuable. It becomes very easy to no longer see them as the wisdom in the room. And then you talk about uh, inheriting your grandmother, your beloved grandmother Mimo's Bible, which has tons of commentary in it, Mm -hmm. in the marginalia, it's called. Uh, You say that her commentary on Joshua really got to you. In the third chapter of Joshua, there's an explanation for how to handle the Ark of the Covenant. And somehow, someway, your grandmother, Sarah, saw the wisdom there uh, in this verse. And Joshua said, sanctify yourselves, for you have not passed this way before. And next to that verse, Meemaw simply wrote, I equate this with old age. That this is perhaps the most important blessing that older people can offer us. They can tell us that this season we are in will not be our last. That the worst thing that has ever happened does not define who we are and that it might not even be so bad. And they can grab us by the shoulders in the church and impute to us that we are doing a wonderful job of this exhausting and sweaty thing called life. And they should know, after all, they have passed this way before. Beautiful article, um, Sarah, and I clearly this is we've touched upon this a little bit when we talk about talked about boomers mm-hmm. and generations and the um, uh, diversity of of sort of of that demographic that we don't really talk about people people really being segmented by age. Um, this struck a chord though, um, not only in the way that it um, I don't know highlighted one of the strange gifts of the church, generally speaking, but also in, uh, I don't looking to the wisdom and counterintuitive uh, grace of those who are much older than us. I mean, do you want to share a little bit more about what, what was behind this? Um, well, I'd, first I want to say David Peters is the reason I wrote this because he, uh, David Peters is a priest in our diocese, a church planter. He's got, um, he's planted a church, St. Joan of Arc in Pflugerville, Texas. Um, we've actually talked about David on this podcast before. He wrote a piece about how he accidentally killed someone in college. Um, he's a really neat guy, but he preached to my college students actually this text about um, Jesus receiving a, a blessing in the temple, and and it it was so. I mean, it just it was something I would have completely missed that this is like a thing that the elderly can offer us, and 
David, it was great to hear him preach it because what he actually did was said to my students, you're now old enough, like you're older than people now and you can offer this to them, um, which was an incredible word because honestly, after I've written this piece and Dave, you may have this experience, but I find that young people have in some ways an equal sense of hope about the world and, 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 you know, it's not the exact same because it's not from experience, but there's something about listening to those people that are kind of on either end of the life, like timeline that has been very moving for me. I mean, um, one thing my husband said to me when I took this job with college students was like, you're going to have to be less cynical. You know that, right? And, um, and I, what's incredible to me is when I'm around them, I, I actually feel less cynical. Um, which has been the gift that they've given me. But um, yeah, I, 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 it was very jarring to hear David Peters preach about this. And then literally like I was in church, I think, I think it was the, it was a couple weeks later. And this woman who's in her eighties at our church walked up to us and grabbed me by the shoulders and like kind of shook me and said, you're such a wonderful mother. You're such a wonderful wife. You're such a wonderful preacher. And it was like, I was like, oh my gosh. And we were like right in front of the altar too. It was like after church. I was, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the scripture. Like she's like giving me a blessing. Like, um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, I felt like it was something I needed to speak to because church is one of the last spaces where we're kind of all in this. I think it is the last space, actually. We always say one of the last, but I can't think of another one where we're all like there together. Sure, they have these old folks homes where like young people live in them and help them. And they're all like in Switzerland or whatever. But like those people get free housing. Like church is the one space you all show up for and no one's getting anything for free. You know, no one's getting anything for being nice. And that that really blows me away, actually. Um, Sunday after Sunday to see to see that. So, yeah. Sarah, as you were talking about being at Rice, it reminded me of an episode of This American Life from a few years back, where they spend uh, the whole hour at Penn State University, um, just sort of mm-hmm. talking about college life, and and they talk to a, an older guy who owns a bar. Um, at Penn State, and he talks about how much he loves being around younger people mm-hmm. because life hasn't kicked them in the teeth yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and they have this mm-hmm. sort of hope and optimism about about the future, um, and that's true. And but at the same time, um, there is such grace and wisdom and a sense of um, I don't know, a sense of self that comes with aging. Like I always think about the story in John chapter eight of the woman caught in adultery and Jesus saying, you know, let he let he among you who is without sin cast the first stone. And it said they dropped their stones and started to walk away with the older um, men leaving first. You know, because oh the older, gosh, because the older, the, the older, the you know, longer you've lived, um, the more of a sense of your your sin, your frailty um, that you that you have. And I, and I, and I love that about older people, right? That when you talk about sin and brokenness um, and needing to find hope outside of yourself, um, when you tell heavy stories, basically, they're there for it. You know, whereas I have also had the experience with younger people not being there for it. Right. Can you give us more inspiration? Can we, can we, yeah. can we, you know, we're, we're really living our best lives now. Can you help right. us along that path? You know, so I, I don't want to say I'm a little, um, 
I'm a little gun shy sometimes of younger people, especially sort of hard charging, can do type A, take over the world type young people. Because so students at Rice, kind of, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because um, the gospel doesn't necessarily interact well with that mentality, you know? Yeah, um, I or mean, does it? it you, you tell me, Sarah. I, I mean, I think for me. We also like they they are so bright and so driven and so incredible. Dave, I know your students are like this too, but they also live in this world. Yes. And they and this world is a hard world to yes, live in. Yes, it is. Um, you know, I mean, my students right now, there's a professor. This hasn't been in the news, I don't think, but there's a a, a visiting professor or something that has they I think he will officially they will say that he has coronavirus. Mm. Um, that's been on campus. And so they're all like I mean, they're navigating a really – when I think about my students who are seniors right now, they went their freshman year, sophomore year was Hurricane Harvey. I mean, think about everything they've been through in four years. So I, I do I, – I hear what you're saying, but I, I do think, like, a lot of young people who are, th- like, bright, thoughtful people are also bright, thoughtful people, and, and they're in a world that sometimes Absolutely. feels like it's on fire. A hundred percent. Yeah. They're – a hundred percent. Um, and there is, there is still something though that happens when it's like, I don't want to say when you stop trying to make something of yourself, but something mm-hmm. like that, you know, mm-hmm. when, when you, mm-hmm. there's a different kind of hope that takes over when you're like, totally. well, Hey, this is me, you know, mm-hmm. and I've, I've, uh, I've done what I've done and maybe I'll do some more, maybe I won't, but there isn't the sense of like, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm here to kind of like build a life and 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 make my mark and get it done and mm-hmm. and there's something beautiful about that about that too um but you know and then the other thing i always think about is like is there really such thing as an older person like w- will i like here i am i'm not old i'm 43 but i still in some ways feel like the same person that i was and don't make a joke here um when i was 15 <laughs> you know or 16 or whatever like that that i has the same amount of hair folks uh-huh. okay yeah, exactly uh-huh. <laughs> she couldn't resist she <laughs> could not resist i can't no, you it's can't. like rj you're handing the, them to me no but i have the same the same fears like the same yeah. insecurities the same needs like i'm i'm never going to stop needing less affirmation than i need right now in fact i may need more um, and my wife has to make her peace with that reality. Um, or I, uh, gosh, I don't know. There's so much I could say along those lines, but you know, to some degree, aren't we all just 14 year olds trapped in quote unquote adult bodies, you know, sure. who are dealing with the same stuff that we always did. And yet maybe hopefully we come to a little bit more peace with our, with ourselves. And, and we recognize that, Hey, I may be like this, but people see, there are at least some people in the world that seem to love me. You know, well, and God and, loves me, and maybe I can sleep better at night or something. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's there's something about like older people. Sure, may, maybe you ha- you're worried about the same things. Maybe you're not. I don't know. I mean, I know for a lot of women, they kind of magically hit fifty and magically hit sixty, and there's a lot of stuff about appearance that you're just like, "Well, it's not going to get better." And you can just kind of <laughs> let go there of it, go. Yep. you know. Yep, and that's a word of the gospel to me as I careen towards those ages. But I also think when we're thinking on a grander scale, like. 
as I was writing this piece, uh, I remembered this time when I was a kid and I went to stay. So I really have always, I said in the piece, I've always been friends with like pretty brash old ladies. And as a kid, my best friend was Miss Sue. She lived next door. Uh, she was an angry divorcee. Um, and we would like have tea together. Like that was our thing. And so one time she took me to see. You would have tea. She would have bourbon. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and like, But one time she took me to visit her family, which they were lived in this really small town in the South in this really old house. And I've been thinking about this so much lately with the virus because I was in this bedroom that was like dark floor, dark walls, dark ceiling, white bed. Like there, it's like you've stepped into like, you know, 1892, right? And her sister, who's also ancient, walks into the room and goes, you know what, Sarah? My great aunt Shelley died in this room of yellow fever in 1917. And I did not sleep a wink that night. But... <laughs> It reminded me, I mean, I think about that right now, like, like these people have seen stuff, you know what I mean? And they can say to us, this may not be the worst thing that we've ever seen. Like, yeah. it's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have, I, gosh, I've got a, a lot of th things I got to say about this. Um, the first is I actually, I agree with RJ what you, when I've, there's, there's a caricature out there of a certain elderly churchgoer. Usually it's a church lady type, maybe Dana Carvey is to blame for all this, who mm -hmm. is the worst, um, basically the reason why churches are all bad you know they're they're, right. they're sort of the police no. woman and they're critical and um my experience while there are neurotic uh and a lot of people get more neurotic as they get older and more anxious and stuff like that by and large at least when preaching the message of god's grace for sinners i feel like it gets a better reception uh, among older people, <laughs> I, I feel like I, I the, the re, at least the resistance uh, that the, the most vocal resistance has always been among young, uh, hardcore Christians who've got a higher anthropology, and they don't. And mm -hmm. the, the life has a way of lowering your anthropology, and so that doesn't mean that the students I work with are ex under huge amounts of pressure. And you know, spring break is about upon us, and they need this break so badly, and they do respond to God's grace. But on what I wasn't expecting was that the most encouragement that the message of God's one-way love would would get would be from all sort of the, the, the more gray-haired service. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why churches are more full of uh, older people, and that's a good thing. The other thing, though, is I think that the anti-old uh, or the... the, the um, idolatry of youth is so pronounced. We're living through this primary uh, uh, season, and one of the refrains you keep hearing is that people are upset about how old uh, the candidates for the Democratic Party are. And by that, I mean Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, though I guess she dropped out today. And there's this knee-jerk. Now, there might be legitimate concerns about health and longevity and all these things, but simmering somewhere in there feels like uh, a disdain or deep suspicion of older people. Mm. And uh, I wish they were more like me. I wish they were younger. And then the third thing I'll say is that I saw the documentary yesterday um, of uh, Once We're Brothers, which is a documentary about Robbie Robertson and the band, the wonderful group from the early, late 60s and early 70s. And he was saying, they were talking about what was at the heart of this group's appeal. And um, he said, well, in the late 60s, all of the um, 
old people were vilified. Like the older generation was seen as terrible. And mm-hmm. everything that was exciting was going among among the youth. Now there was some wonderful movements going on, but where the band stuck out is they actually really liked their parents and they liked older folks to the extent that in the in sleeve, the inner sleeve of their first album, Music for Big Pink, there's a picture says next of kin and it's them with all their grandparents, their parents, and their like nieces and nephews. And it was this wow. radically countercultural statement that seemed to evoke something eternal and more than just present tense. And today we laugh about, you know, the strawberry alarm clock and Paisley and all of this uh, psychedelic stuff that seems so of that moment. And yet the band's music stands almost outside of time. And I think it has a little bit to do with their veneration, not not, not worship of, but veneration of the old as the wisdom in the room, Um, Mm -hmm. which I, that, that was what what struck me and then um finally sarah you also sent me something a photo essay that oh this woman uh deanna dave and i had a good cry together this morning on the phone <laughs> deanna it's, it's a little awkward I wanna, it's a little awkward to discuss a uh photo essay on a podcast but we'll provide the link to it this was highlighted in the new yorker a photographer's parents wave farewell and it's this photographer named deanna dykeman uh, who at the end of every one of her visits, she would um, her parents would stand outside and wave goodbye to her. It was suburbia, it was America, sort of a ranch, typical middle class house, and it was, so starting in 1991, she thought to photograph them in this pose, uh, moved by the mounting awareness that the peaceful years would not last forever. I'm reading from the New Yorker now, and the image shows their arms rising together in a farewell wave. So, and for more than 20 years after that, during every departure, Dykeman uh, photographed her parents at the same moment, rolling down her car window and aiming her lens towards their home. Each image reiterates the quiet loyalty of her parents' tradition. They recede into the warm glow of the garage on rainy evenings and laugh under the eaves in better weather. Inevitably, though, they age. A few of Dykeman's portraits, cropped to include the interior of the departing car, convey the parallel progress of her own life. The hand that clutches her camera lens eventually sheds its wedding band. Earlier photographs show the matted fur of an old dog's ears and the blurred face of her baby son. In later shots, the boy is grown behind the wheel, backing down the driveway as Dykeman photographs her elderly parents from the passenger seat. Now, that's a beautiful description, but if you actually see these photos, what you see is unconditional love from yes. parents in that cannot be replicated in any other form in the same exact way. I, I think it can become approximated, but it can't be replicated. And you see this this couple, they don't ever speak, but they're just waving goodbye and the stability and the beauty of this humble act done over years and as the age you can you start to cry because you're processing both your own aging you're thinking of your own parents and if you have a have had a shred of that kind of support of the parents who who go outside and wave goodbye to you as you're pulling away every single time it tugs on the heartstrings in a way that is completely outside of uh, reason or the cerebral life. I mean, I, I saw it and I, Sarah, yes, we, we talked on the phone. I was like, I, I just, I'm, I'm falling apart over here because there's this stirs something so deep in me. I mean, I, I, of course, I think about the father and the prodigal son parable, and I think about this as, as God who is there steadfastly, you know, uh, with love as we sort of go and do our thing. And, but, um, but even without the theological gloss, I think um, 
there's a yearning like a that's too deep for words for mm. this kind of uh, love to not to decay, uh, but to persist and uh, to be our great uh, sto- mast in the storms. Uh, but you sent it to me, Sarah. What did you think of it? I mean, I loved it because I first the first thing is um, I remember the last time, and I have a photograph of the last time I saw my meemaw, the one whose Bible commentary we have, because when Harvey hit, we went there, and uh, and I I just knew she wasn't sick at the time or anything, but I was like, this is the last time we're going to see her, and I remember her standing in the driveway, and her eyes were filled with tears because she was so worried about us. And she was still such a mother at that point. And it was so powerful. And I was like, this is, you know, and I have this photograph of that moment that was so beautiful. And she died February of that year. But it makes me think of last because I think we live in a culture that really fetishizes first. You know, you're always like, you know, losing your virginity or the first time you have a drink or the first time you get to, you know, whatever. I learners, mean, and learners then I permits. Think- <clears throat> Right. Or the first time you learn to ride a bike. Right. And then I think about last, like the last, like the last time you ride a bike. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, do you know when that is? Like, or like, I remember being in line for communion at church and our son is nine. So he's like big. And I looked down and was like, he was, was, I don't know why it just struck me. Like, I wonder if he wants me to pick him up. And I was like, do you want me to pick you up? And I picked him up. And that's the last time I held him. Like, so for me, it is this beautiful thing about um, that our last are in some ways like more important and say more about us than our first do. Um, and I really, I love that. But I do have to say it made me think though that every time I would leave my grandmother's house, they, my both of my grandmothers were like star grandmothers. I'm very fortunate in that. And so they made me feel like a queen, a princess. And, and like, I was like, they loved me more than life itself. And so whenever we left them, I was always like, Oh my God, what are they going to do without me? And I would cry. And, and as we would leave, like, Oh, she's just in that house by herself. She needs me. And now that I have grandchildren and I'm seeing them with their grandparents and they're so freaking tired after they have grandchildren with them, it did make me laugh a little See bit. Ya. I was like, <laughs> See ya. Maybe, they're like, bye. Yeah, maybe those parents, those <laughs> lovely parents are like internally, they're like, Oh gosh, I can't <laughs> wait to take a nap. <laughs> so that was funny, but. Anyway, what do you think, RJ? Uh, a couple of thoughts. I was visiting recently, Sarah, what you were just saying about the last time we did everything. It reminded me, at a visit recently with an older man who um, had a really interesting life, like interesting career, um, traveled a lot, went on these amazing long um, like bike tours. Uh, he also, he hand he handmade like rowing shells, like crew shells, boats. Oh so interesting guy. But now he kind of is at home and not mobile and can't really do anything. And I asked him how he was doing. He said, he said, I'm doing okay. He said, I lived a really interesting life and did a lot of interesting things. And I can close my eyes and I can remember what it was like to be on a bike, what it was like to be in these places that I traveled to, what it was like to be out on, on the water. And I'm sure he remembers the last time that he did any of those things. And that's, those are kind of what he's holding on to. Um, and of course, you know, has this hope that it's 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 not forever that he's going to get to do all those things again um, when he gets a a new body and a new mind and kind of you know sees Jesus face to face. The other thing I thought about was, you know, I've now done somewhere around a hundred funerals, something like that, and the ones which always get me 
are the ones where it is so crystal clear that this person who has died loved their children and loved their grandchildren and loved their great-grandchildren and not just loved them, you know, loved them, but was was there for them and they did things together and they did everything they could to be in the presence of their children and grandchildren and their door was always open and they went on vacation together. And and I think it gets me because I I didn't know my grandparents the way that mm-hmm. you do, Sarah. You know, they were we never really lived near them. Some of them were in Holland. Some of them died when I was fairly young. And so you're right to to have that kind of person in your life who is so just irrevocably, unconditionally on your side is poignant. Um, but then to see the impact that has. The, the, the blessing that that conveys, the belovedness that is so clear through the generations. And the fact that like when you have a parent like that, you, you're more likely to stick around. And right. the kids are more likely to stick around. The grandkids right. are more likely to st- stick around. And even as I say that, I know that anyone who has kids and grandkids is going to be sort of judging themselves a little bit, sure. you know, based I'm on I'm already what... judging myself. I'm like, will my kids stick around? Yeah, will they stick? Yeah. Oh, seriously. And yeah. I, I don't know. But sure. all I know is that's the kind of parent and grandparent I want to be, you know, that I want to pass that blessing down. Because when you when you know that you're loved in that way, it gives you such a a sense of, of self and belonging and and. And it just it does actually get paid forward mm. to the next generation. Um, That's so that I, makes me think yeah. of my own my own father, frankly, because he did a series of podcasts where he's he, he's thinking all he's writing a book right now about um, end of life and sort of I think it's called Mockingbird for Boomers, and um, he mocking boomer. Well, he was just talking about what is that what is there for me in this stage of life, and besides sort of reconciling with one's past and the peace of God and and the, all the wonderful gifts of old age. But he 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 actually voiced this that it's to bless those who are doing the work now, who are sort of um, mm. to and that to me that when I heard it, it made me feel deeply sad because it reminded me of his you know decline or just that life is we're all aging and things don't last forever and the side of the you know paradise but i also thought to myself it was um you're either you see so many people who refuse to give up their positions of power or their positions of influence when and and hold on to them long after they should you see this in church work all the time i think yeah and yeah. uh the courage to accept this actually that that, that people in fact in our middle age stage are just dying for some dying. encouragement, some blessing. Oh my gosh! And you, it, you yeah. can't get it from younger people, and it's like it's just as necessary and urgent. It just doesn't. It doesn't have the same social uh, reward. Or, um, but um, I don't. I don't. I don't really know what that is. To ex- rejoice in the success of others rather than your own success. To give it to away. Be about lift, lifting up exactly. To lifting gosh, up other people. There's so much there though about like how people. I mean, this is like a whole thing, but how people aren't aging well and how people aren't dealing with the fact that they're going to die. And so it's so I feel this is not always true, but I do feel like people who are 10, 20, even 30 years older than me see me as some sort of competition as opposed to someone who really needs their wisdom and encouragement. And I think that's something like I need to hold close and remember when I'm around like people who are younger, who are like stepping into the role, you know, that I've filled before. So 
I don't know. It, it, there is something to that about how we're not accepting we're not accepting age well. We're not accepting death well. And so we're still kind of like. But you can just see how people deal with it in their physical bodies. Like they just refuse yeah. to, to age. Uh, right. And in a variety of different ways. And, and ultimately that can be very depressing when you, when you see it yeah. from, because as a person whose, whose hair is graying, you just look, it's like, oh my gosh, um, am, have I, what is there? It's just is is just downhill from here, or is there unique opportunities and, and grace and beauty that is actually increases rather than decreases in a in a very specific mm-hmm. way? It actually, RJ. Before I'm heading to this, okay, well, just one more thing. I, I was reminded of this exactly what you're talking about, Dave and Sarah. My brother was telling me about his boss actually. And my brother like works in finance or something, but he had his, um, you know, annual review, which like we always dread that. Right. Sure. But he told me about their annual review where his boss basically said like, I'm here for you. I want to support you. I want you to have the best career you possibly can, whether that's here or somewhere else. And I want you to always be honest with me. I'm always going to give you my opinion, but I'm always going to want what's best for you. And even if you want something that I think is not best for you, I will support you 100%. And I was just like, holy moly. <laughs> like, like, I was like, Patrick, you are so lucky. And he's yeah. like, yeah, I know I am. Um, yeah. And his boss is a, you know, his boss is a Christian. And also talked about the importance of like putting God and family first, like way above career. And um, I just was like, oh my gosh, because how so few of us have someone like that in our life, especially in a professional setting who is like you, who is really is trying to lift us up and doesn't yeah. see us as competition yeah. or um, usurping. usurping. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. So what a blessing. Well, let's, him. we're going to dive a little deeper into this well before we get out of it. And that's, we're going to talk by <laughs> fleeing coronavirus and finding our mortality by Tara Isabella Burton. Again, Tara is um, one of our speakers in New York this year. Um, I think it's funny because I think the coronavirus, I hope, I hope it doesn't keep people from coming. Uh, but that is where we're living this week, certainly. But this is what she says. She was she was out of the country uh, celebrating Carnival in Venice uh, during Ash Wednesday. She said, to be reminded okay. in the words of the Ash Wednesday service that we are but dust and to dust we shall return amid the increasingly global panic over COVID-19 was to be reminded of how culturally insulated we have become from the notions of death and bodily givenness. She noticed how immediately when, when this, this, this news about the coronavirus spreads, so does a form of ritualistic, magical thinking. If we can only cling to these totems, if we can only wear these items, if we can only take these precautions, we will be safe. Not just from death, but from the consciousness of its possibility. Our reaction, she writes, to the coronavirus threat at the personal level our desire to stockpile hundreds of dollars worth of hand sanitizer, for example, or to leave places where there is no reported threat, is also a statement about our need for control. Control over our bodies, over our world. And that's what makes the mere possibility of sickness and death that now dominates our news cycle so strange. It reveals precisely how incorporeal and disengaged our daily lives tend to be. It's something we liturgical Christians feel fleetingly as the ashes are pressed onto our foreheads once a year, a wobbly need quickening in the face of mortality that vanishes almost as soon as we totter back out through the church doors. But the statements about mortality we make on Ash Wednesday, and indeed throughout Lent, are only shocking because they have virtually vanished from the rest of our cultural consciousness. 
We forget that we are mortal bodies. Indeed, that we are mere bodies at all, that our flesh is not something through judicious diet and detox teas and expensive exercise classes that exists purely under our own willed jurisdiction. The reminder that the Christian faith carries with it not simply an acknowledgement of the inevitability of death, but also the promise of a bodily resurrection was something all the more astounding and all the more out of step with an era in which our bodies are sacrosanct and in which sickness is seen as such an alien part of the human condition. Um, I have been pondering as to why Ash Wednesday has become such a thing over the course of my admittedly brief Christian life, but to go on social media and see that all these you know, there's a real trendiness to it, but what what else, is there something going on beyond the kind of, I don't know, cachet or something of ashes on one's forehead? And perhaps it is this, uh, we're dying at least every once a year to admit that we're dying. And that, because mm-hmm. we, as we all know, the, the great, the profound depths of the Christian faith, of the salvation, not just kingdom building, but actual salvation, deliverance, reconciliation with God, these things come alive in the face of what Ash Wednesday means, which is that not only that you are going to die, but that in some very real sense you deserve to die, and that uh, yet God has intervened. And um, Well, I have to say this, sorry, Dave. You, you cannot build a kingdom unless you have found salvation, and you cannot find salvation until you admit you're dead. Mm. So... It's the building block. That's where it that's starts. That's where it's, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. Yeah, that's where it starts. I mean, you know, I uh, I always think about being in hospital ministry. That was the busiest day of the year was Ash Wednesday. Everybody wanted ashes, Christian or not. Like, this is like what everyone wanted. Um, yeah, I don't know. We've, ha- we've had such a, it's been such a weird few days for us, a uh, week for us, because our um, son broke his arm on the, th- like the day after Ash Wednesday oh, no. for the second time in third grade. Um, <laughs> so we're You don't we're need amazing. any more reminders of your fr- frailty. And it, it, it's, it's been so bodily. Like it's been so bodily, you know, like I just, it's like sponge baths and, um, you know, we finally got a cast. And uh, when I, when I took him in, to the ER, you know, because I've done this once before, I lied the first time. Sorry, uh, 14-year-old Neil, if you ever listen to these podcasts. I lied the first time he broke his arm and said, sure, I'll stay when they said it, and then just left the room. And this time I was like, I'm going to stick it out. You know, because they, the, they put kids on, like, ketamine. They don't know. Yeah, they don't mess <laughs> so, around. Um, don't stay in the room. It's very civil war when people are setting your kids' <laughs> arm. <laughs> but it's uh, – it's, it's hard for me to um it's hard and and I this is like totally gospel according to RJ. Like I just have to name it cuz RJ was like the first person that said this to me and it has stayed it has stayed with me like certain things you've said. That it's hard to buy into this idea that we deserve safety as Christians. Like what we're promised in the gospel by Jesus is that we're not to be afraid. But that's different from safety. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I am not certainly playing down the virus, um, although I will say, like, I do take some reassurance that the death rate is pretty low. Um, but I totally feel the panic. I mean, Thursday was like, 
Neil broke his arm. Um, there was a water main break in Houston that flooded uh, streets and suddenly we had to boil our water. It was crazy. And uh, they, my daughter's school called while we were still in the ER with my son that she was sick. And there was coronavirus. And I was like, oh, I see why people want to move off the grid, right? I see why people want to try to find some wall of safety. But, like, actually, like, as Christians, like, I've, like, we're just called to kind of go deeper in, you know? Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, there was, a, did you, you saw that thing, Sarah, that that rector wrote about sort of coronavirus and communion or whatever yeah. about, which is, I so I put that up. You know, because I feel what was it? I what feel was it? Well, basically saying that according to the David C- Sibley wrote it. According Just to the to CDC, that. there has mm-hmm. never been a documented case of disease uh, transmission through the sharing of a communion cup, mm-hmm. like ever. You know, mm-hmm. and so it was just in order like wash your hands, be careful. You know, if you're sick, don't come to church, but like don't don't worry about taking communion because it's probably not going to make you probably not going to make you sick. And I only I. I say that because I put it up, you know, on my church website and stuff, because now, you know, I'm the rector, I feel responsible to be somewhat proactive. It got shared like a hundred times on Facebook. I've never had anything be shared a hundred times. So clearly it's very much on people's minds right now, while also at the same time, how many people have died of coronavirus in in the U.S. now? Like 10, maybe? And this flu season, the the flu this season has killed 16,000 people. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just, I get the fear, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a magnitude thing. But in terms of death, I said this before, but I haven't said it for a while, you know, that whole Alex large thing, like he has an app on his phone, which reminds him a couple times a day randomly that he's going to die, <laughs> you know, just like he'll be going to lunch, like going to the bathroom, like in a meeting, get a little buzz in his phone. Like, don't forget you're going to die. Um, which, which is, is nice for him. Cause it's a good reminder that like, whatever you think is so important right now, you know, a hundred years from now, no one's going to care. Right. <laughs> you know, and, you, and you're not that important. You're pretty small. Um, so just ask yourself, what would Lady Gaga do? What would Lady Gaga do? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> just blow the cash on the dress. Yeah. No, because it, it's it's the opposite of uh, YOLO. Or is it? I don't know. Maybe they're kind of I don't tied know. in it's, together, right? And this goes yeah. with the aging thing, too. Like, yeah. you, you don't don't stress out too much because you don't, it doesn't matter that much. There's a God in heaven. There's, there's freedom to be fra- found in smallness and, like, embracing the fact that you're going to going to die, that you can enjoy your life a little bit, not take things so seriously. I don't know, D- Dave. How how do all those things come together? The 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 y- the YOLO impulse with the smallness impulse. It, well, I mean, think, it's about I freedom the, at the, the end of the day, right? Yeah, the, about we're all going to die. Kind of thing can be taken in a nihilistic in, in, or in indulgent way. Like let's therefore eat, drink, and be merry. Or it can be, uh, Christians would say, then you're free to basically s- give yourself away to to serve yes. at a cost mm-hmm. to yourself to to yeah. mm-hmm. to not um not to buy a nicer dress or to but to to give your money to actually not 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 self indulgence right. but to give it all away since you can't take anything with you to um you know i don't do not store up for yourselves treasures I'm cur- on earth i'm very curious just destroy. to know like you you talk about the virus and people give you a lot of, um, you know, reasons why you either should take it more seriously or less seriously. And, um, I, I am fascinated by the panic. Um, and I think it's, I don't think it's that different. Um, 
And I love, I'm a person who reads nothing but almost post-apocalyptic fiction now. And like, this is how it begins. You know, I, I'm, I get suckered into that very easily. Um, but I also um, know that uh, what is behind the panic? What are we, uh, is it a little bit like natural disasters? I think, I think uh, Walker Percy talked about natural disasters. People actually come to prefer them because you feel sort of, they jolt you out of your out of your slumber complacency you, or, yeah. um, or it, could it be like a natural disaster is the only time Americans feel okay about not working. And the fact that we're canceling everything from what I can tell isn't just about health. It's also about finally I get a chance to rest and I, and not yeah. feel guilty about it. I've, I have a, I have a legitimate excuse. I justified uh, in canceling things or I'm just dying for a break, but this is the only way I can think. And then of course there is the globalization and people are expressing perhaps a, a, a deep uh, resentment and or at least fears about how quickly things are uh, spiral out of control. And a lot of this is, yes, uh, it exposes just how addicted to control, personal control we are. Um, and there's the freedom of the gospel within this. Um, for Christians, I, I don't think to... Um, because we've had all this stuff about communion come up and everyone's like, well, what, 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 what precautions are you taking? And I want to take. I'm there. There's like this smart-ass, uh, you know, pious responses I want to give about, you know, I'm I'm going to do the same thing I always do and trust in the blood of Jesus to you know, <laughs> bring me to to uh, my heavenly reward. But it it does expose just how little um, any of us believe that God is acting right now. Um, that's a. I I. I maybe this is just the episode where I quote David Peters too much, but um, I I feel compelled to say that he was in the local news in Austin because the Catholic church, the archdiocese has been a little, they've been a little freaked out. And so they've already released all the rules about, should you still take wine? Should you not? And, you know, we don't want to, is all this stuff about like, we're trying to avoid a worst case scenario. And I mean, it's kind of scary to read what they're saying. So there was this piece that went up, um, in the Austin Statesman and, uh, they so they have like the first three quarters of it is this interview with um you know with priests and uh with the bishops about like all like just to, it just it's very scary i'm sure they mean it and they're genuine but it's very scary and then they talk to david peters at his small you know church plant that's doing great work and david said Jesus touched lepers. I told my folks if they get sick, I would visit them and pray with them, take them communion and take precautions. And I think, I think sometimes you got to listen to the guy who accidentally killed someone in college and then like served in Iraq. You know what I mean? Mm. Like to our point about like old people and experience, I think sometimes you need to listen to the people who've been through a lot when it feels like something big is looming. Mm. So, wow. Thank you, David Peters. That's a, yeah. <laughs> wow. It's a good word. Um, well, we're going to close with one last article um, by Father Stephen Freeman, who we haven't talked about recently, the Orthodox uh, priest who, who has a website that's very active. And he wrote an article called, Can You Forgive Someone Else's Enemies? Which struck me as quite timely. He opens by saying, forgive everyone for everything. He quote, That's a quote from uh, the brothers Karamazov uh, and from the mouth of the fictional elder Sozima. But is it a, certainly, it's a sentiment well within the bounds of Orthodox Christian thought. 
I have been challenged from time to time by people arguing that we cannot forgive those who have not sinned against us, that this right belongs only to the victims involved. I believe this is profoundly untrue. But to understand why, it is necessary to look deeply into the meaning and function of forgiveness. I should add as an aside that those who argue loudly that they cannot forgive someone else's enemies find little trouble in blaming someone else's enemies. They do not think this to be beyond their reach. Whoa. Forgiveness is not strict. Well, white people. <laughs> forgiveness is not strictly speaking the remission of a legal debt or wrong that has been done. You know, of course, I, I take issue with that statement. Um, but he says it's not, it's strictly speaking, it's far greater. And then he quotes Matthew 16, 19, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Forgiving is loosing. Refusing to forgive is binding. The imagery of loosing and binding helps move the imagination away from illegal construction. When we sin, or even when we are involved in sin, we become bound. There is a binding that occurs because we ourselves were the cause of the sin. There is a binding that occurs because we ourselves were the victim of a sin. There is a binding that occurs because we simply witness the sin. There is even a form of binding that occurs to the whole of humanity because of the diminishment of even one of its members. If everyone were somehow only responsible for their own actions, the world would be quite different. As it is, the action of one involves the binding of all. Adam's sin has left us bound ever since. And just as there is a binding that occurs in each of these things, so there is a loosing that is appropriate to each. Obviously, the injury that a victim suffers binds them far tighter to their enemy than someone who is at a remove. And such a loosing is greater and represents a greater spiritual effort. But that effort is itself impeded by the refusal of all around to share in the loosing. And just as the refusal of all around impedes the loosing, so the participation of others makes the loosing easier. Of course, it jars us to hear that someone dares to forgive the killer of a child. Only the child could offer such forgiveness. These words were spoken by Ivan Karamazov as he professed his refusal of God's mercy. He demanded justice for an injured child. Forgiveness that works by justice is no forgiveness at all. Forgiveness is not the child saying, what you did to me is okay. It is loosing the bonds that are forged in sin. The forgiveness of sin is the trampling down of death by death, an act of radical, undeserved resurrection. We often think that not forgiving someone is only destructive for them, but the lack of forgiveness is often equally devastating for a victim as well. The darkness of a crime often extends mercilessly beyond the victim alone. Forgiveness uh, in cases of restorative justice that he's personally witnessed, he says, is the only way forward. Murder is the triumph of a lie. Forgiveness is the triumph of an even greater truth. It is striking how utterly central forgiveness was to the ministry of Christ. It dominates almost everything he did. Many observed that he kept company with sinners, but he first and foremost forgave them. Their loyalty and devotion to him flowed from the spiritual loosing that they found in him. Obviously a heavily, a very heavy subject and one that is deeply freighted in our current times. But um, And I have a real reservation about he's, he's got a deep-seated... Um, resistance to ever thinking of things in legal terms, even though that's how we experience so much of reality. Uh, but this idea of sin binding and loosing, I, I found it to be very, I mean, it's, it's scriptural, but it's deeply powerful. Um, w- what do you think? I, I, I keep coming back to Dolly Parton's quote that forgiveness is all there is, uh, and yet the world hates forgiveness, especially when you're saying you can forgive someone else's enemies. I've just always had a really hard time 
with like group think about people like and and I'm great at it in theory like I'm great at being like we've all decided that person is horrible and uh whatever they did was unforgivable and we should cast them out in our outer darkness and then like if I have an exchange where like I'm around that person physically I'm like well but like it's still a person. I mean, there's still like this thing that like, so I found myself in my whole life in these awkward social situations. And I would love to say it's because like, I, you know, have the mind of Christ. I really just think like the Holy spirit wears big boots and like kicks me in the ass towards people I don't want to walk towards. But like, it's, it's a gift. Do you know what I mean? It's an awkward gift, but it's a gift because it, it means that these people that like, even people I really, really, really don't like, like when I encounter them, I'm like, Oh, you're super anxious. That's why you're so annoying. You know what I mean? Or, Oh, you're, you've got like, obviously like you had a, like a really tough childhood and that's why you're super dysfunctional for us to be around. I, I don't know. I, I, I think about that. I also think about like this idea that we can stand in the gap for each other. And that that is like a really beautiful imagery that helps me sometimes when I think about forgiveness, that maybe you can't forgive this person, but like I can stand in the gap and forgive them. And maybe that there's peace that you can find in that dynamic. I mean, I think about, um, uh, I'm just thinking of all the family members that possibly listen to this. All right, we'll go for it. Um, I'm thinking about when, when my grandmother died, I have a cousin who does not speak to um, his parents at all for what I think are pretty justifiable reasons. You know, there's a history of alcoholism and addiction in my family. So you do the math. And he's got four little kids. He was out of touch with my grandmother, who is very close to me, She's making an appearance in this podcast again, but very close to her. Um, and then kind of as he grew into adulthood and had his own family, pulled more and more away from his parents, which kind of made him pull more and more away from her. And when she died, there was this proclamation of like, if he shows up for the funeral, you know, and he hasn't visited her and he's going to just think he can roll in here. And Josh and I were like, yeah, he's going to roll in here and we're going to like let him sit on the pew with us. <laughs> like, like that's what's going to go down, you know, because I this maybe people can't forgive people. I There are certainly people I struggle with forgiveness, but. I actually find it really comforting that Dave could forgive those people for me mm. or that RJ could forgive those people for me. Or And you guys, on some level, you have done that for me with certain people or you've been able to speak a word of compassion or or about their brokenness. or I mean, that's like, gosh, that's like Christian friendship and it's like most gospel giving best, you know, when someone can say to you, Hey, like maybe you're villainizing this person or, Hey, maybe that person's not well, or, or what that person did to you was horrible. And you know what? I'm going to be with them in this moment. Cause you don't have to be, you can't do that. So. Yeah. That's what I'm struggling with, you know, cause like you said, Sarah, you and I being ministers, pastors, priests, whatever you want to call it, you know, we, we, and just who we are, because we love Jesus, we talk about and proclaim forgiveness and absolution all the time mm-hmm. and love to do it and and love to give people the benefit of the doubt, right? Love to sort of um, explain why, you know, talk about the bondage of the will, things like mm-hmm. that. And yet, when it comes to people that I feel like have wronged me personally, it is so hard. 
It's so hard to forgive and to let go and to not, um, and I wonder sometimes, like, how forgiving of a heart do I really have, (laughs) you know? Um, And again, there's great comfort in knowing that Jesus's capacity for forgiveness is infinitely more than mine, um, because I do, you know, you see these amazing examples of forgiveness, like, but I, I don't know, I, I do wonder about it sometimes, like, we, it's almost like we have to be here to proclaim forgiveness because it so rarely happens, because people do hold grudges and they hold pain, um, you know, even against people who are, who are dead, like, you know, if you, and oh, you can't, totally. if you can't forgive someone who's dead, you yeah. know, it's like, what yeah. hope do you, what hope do you have? Because there's no hope for reconciliation. That person's not going to come back from the dead and be like, I'm so sorry for what I did. Um, but there, RJ, I love what you're saying, because I think it points to a deeper, more challenging theological question, which is, are we okay with Jesus forgiving people we can't forgive? Yes, and I and I I am I absolutely yeah. Like you said, thank I mean, God that, thank God that he can thank God yeah. that he can when I can't yeah. and thank God that he forgives me in my inability right. to forgive. Yeah. You know, I mean, let's let's not forget um, that the command to forgive. Uh, Kerouac says, uh, "Forgive everyone your own sins." I mean, th- this sort mm. of blanket forgiveness—it's beautiful, but it's law. I mean, it is. It's law. And, and yeah. if you've tried to command yeah. someone who knows they should forgive someone, and but they just can't, you you've you've watched, uh, you know, the immovable object. And for that person, the, the, the gospel is that Jesus uh, forgives. Uh, yes. Uni- Both I mean, sides. In, in in totally, yeah. and yeah. not in a not with hands behind, uh, fingers behind the back. I, I, I think when he talks about this binding and loosening or loosing uh, thing, I've been watching this decent show on HBO, The Outsider, which is a, a Stephen King adaptation. And it's about basically, spoiler alert, it's about a, a monster that feeds on grief. And so uh, oh that kills... Um, that usually that does some horrific murder, but then sticks around and likes to eat up all of the grief that's and d- ruins this whatever the the, the victim's family just gets compl- always gets completely uh, you know torn asunder by uh, this not even not even supernaturally they just stick around because that one sin ripples out and it has a yes. way of binding everyone to it and it's almost like directly out of the New Testament in this regard, and um, yeah, it's yet to be resolved. But that's what it it makes me think of um, that, and the fact that uh, that it's very true that um, sin binds, and it binds that the the movement against forgiveness um, is always people thinking that you're somehow exonerating the or or saying that it didn't matter what happened, and that's not in any regard. It's in fact, you're, you're saying, saying it mattered so much that blood had to be shed. You know that's what mm. that, um, uh, that there is a cost that there is deep, deep uh, transgression and hurt and and malice and all of these things, and yet um, w- none of us forgive perfectly. I mean, I think even when we do forgive at all, it's a miracle of God. I mean, you... yes. I this whole conversation just I I feel badly for saying this, but it's funny to me because. When we have these conversations, we're often thinking of like these like horrible things <laughs> that generally don't happen to most Like Stephen of us. King, right, yeah. Right? But like the people that I can't forgive, like 
they have a better social media presence than I do. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like those are the people I can't forgive. It's, it's, it's harder. It's, can you forgive? Can you forgive bad breath? You know, it's like so you know. right. Like it's so funny to me that it's like we have these big conversations and we're like, oh well, we don't want to. You know, we can't. Like people struggle with forgiveness over murder. People struggle with forgiveness over assault. And it's like. Yeah, but, like, what do we struggle with forgiveness for? Well, I, you know, because, like, I got a snippy email from a teacher, you know? Like, I mean, it's like, I don't know. No, so Jesus stands in that gap, Someone too, who stands you, know? you up for a meeting, you know? Right. Well, I hope you guys will forgive me for having gone on so long today, but I think it was, it was worth it. I'll try. And, um, I'll try. <laughs> RJ will not. Sarah will have to forgive you for never aging, but that'll. That's gonna be hard. <laughs> mm, I don't need your forgiveness. <laughs> well, I hope the rest of uh, the next uh, few poor weeks of your Lent goes well. It's or at least is blessed, and as you were given glimpses into the forgiveness of God, and um, that we will talk again soon. And uh, yeah, bye. Good to talk bye, to friends. you guys. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.